Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are working through this book slowly, and hopefully pick up the pace a little bit here in the next few weeks as we, as we look through verses um, chapter 7 and following. For the past several messages, um, we have been uh, working through verse, chapters 5 and 6, and in these chapters, uh, Paul has been teaching us that God's people are a purified people, and if we are a purified people, then we should live in a purified fellowship. Um, that's kind of a logical conclusion. One, we should live in a purified fellowship where God's truth, uh, particularly as it relates to the issues of morality and what is immoral, uh, those things are not distorted or downplayed or um, uh, used in any way to ease the burden of conscience or to justify our selfish desires. And, and unfortunately, that was the issue that was happening in Corinth. Uh, as he writes to them, he begins in these first six chapters to make it plain to them that they, are, that they should know better and that they should uh, recognize that uh, they were splashing around in a cesspool of their own immorality. And uh, as a whole, no one was doing anything about it. No one was correcting it. No one was confronting it. And so he writes to do that. And in fact, they were even proud of it. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. They were, they were boasting in how tolerant they were of their freedom in Christ while turning that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, which we should never do, Galatians 5 says. So Paul writes to them here to confront and to call on them to tear down the idols of immorality that were in their midst. He calls on them to judge the body rightly and to walk in purity and in holiness. And uh, we learned last time that the way immorality impacts a person, just kind of thinking back to last week's message, the way that immorality impacts a person is is unique. Uh, It uh, impacts our whole person in a way that's unlike any other sin. If you look at chapter 6, In verse 18, he says, flee immorality for every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. It's not that other sins don't have a a meaningful impact on our heart and and our lives. They certainly do, and they they can have serious consequences. They, They can. But sexual sin alone takes your body, this body that is now a member of Christ himself, And it puts it in a situation, he says, that is uniquely destructive to our souls and desecrating. Your body, he says in verse 13, is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And Christ's resurrection power at work in us underscores that our whole person has permanent value, both body and soul. To put it simply, we said God has stamped our bodies for resurrection in the age to come. And every human being, uh, and, and, and regardless of that, every human being, believer or not, has been created as an irreducible whole, both body and soul. So what you do with your body matters. What I do with my body matters in light of eternity. As disciples of Christ, we've also been made sharers of God's eternal life by grace and through faith. Not by works, right? We can't earn our salvation. And we shouldn't 
try to earn our salvation. Salvation is received as a gracious gift by faith. And we learn that God's resurrection power is, uh, jo- has joined us by faith to God the Son in holy union. We said he has, uh, his resurrection power has made us God the, Spirit, God the Holy Spirit's dwelling place. And God's resurrection power, we said lastly in verses 19 and 20, placed us in God the Father's holy household. So both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God has taken up his dwelling place in our hearts. And he's done that not by our deeds, our works, but through faith. And when we say he's our, he is dwelling in us, we don't mean that he is um, what we don't mean by that is that it's like some kind of transplanted organ that's now inside of us, or some kind of a microchip that you you know microchip your cat or something, and now God is in us. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that God's resurrection power is at work in us, regenerating us, gifting us, comforting us, empowering us, and even preserving us steadfast to the end. God is everywhere. And now his work is effectual in us, as a, particularly in those ways. That's what he means when God is our dwelling place. We're united to God through Christ in the closest possible way. And the implication then is we must flee immorality in all of its contexts. And instead, verse 20 says, glorify God with our whole body, our person, both body and soul. So that's, that's where we've been for the last several weeks. Now, as we come to chapter 7 this morning, um, we arrive at the doorstep of, um, of the, basically the second half of the letter. From this point on, uh, everything changes from Paul's perspective and the way that he communicates. He, he introduces this section in verse 1 with, he says, Now, concerning the things which you wrote... Um, The first six chapters have been filled with urgent correction that was needed because there were issues of disunity and immorality and so forth that needed to be um, instructed and corrected. Um, But as we come to verses, uh, chapter 7 to 16, what we find is an extended section of counsel, pastoral counsel. And uh, compared to this first six chapters, these last, um, what is it, nine, ten chapters take on a much, much friendlier tone. Um, there's a major shift in tone here. The Corinthians had written Paul with a handful of questions, and what they received back uh, here was the correction of verses chapters 1 to 6. But now his answers to those questions uh, with his spirit, uh, uh, spirit-inspired responses. And on the whole, Paul is way less combative in this section, way less confrontational in the back half of the letter as he shows them a more excellent way, which just underscores that when we're dealing with uh, things that people don't know, ignorance, we deal what? Gently and kindly. But when they know better and they've been instructed, which he says, I've taught you this, do you not know? He says it over and over again in those first six chapters. What do you see? You see him confronting rebellion because they were not embracing God's word. So that's just a good um, mindset. We always come in assuming ignorance, and yet um, when that ignorance has been, been instructed and there's still no response, that's when we confront with a, with a stronger response and correction. 
Um, and it doesn't mean, though, as, as we get into these chapters in the back half, it doesn't mean that what Paul's saying is less authoritative or less important. It, it, it's not. It's, it's equally authoritative and important. But there's a whole lot less do you not knows in these verses and a whole lot less pointing out their spiritual in, infancy and a lot more but in my opinions and a lot more um, I say this by way of concession, not of command. So there's just a totally different tone. And, uh, and these chapters are Paul, he's giving us instruction, he is teaching us, but he's also applying God's wisdom to the various circumstances that they were facing. And we need to keep that in mind as we read and study and apply these sections to our lives, especially as we take up issues related to marriage, that occup- the things that occupy chapter 7. All the issues of singleness and marriage, marriage and divorce, divorce and remarriage, they were a confusing mess for the Corinthians. Then, just like they're a confusing mess for people today, um, there's, things aren't that different in the grand scheme of things. So Paul is attempting to, to point them down the path of wisdom. How do we think about these things? There's something here in chapter 7 for everybody. Um, if you're married, there's something here for you. If you're not married, there's something here for you. If you're divorced, there's something here for you. If you're, if you're a widow or a widower, there's something here for you. If you're in a marriage and your spouse is not a Christian, there's something here for you. Paul scatters his counsel all across the cross-section of the church. And so it becomes extremely helpful to guide us into God's will in these matters, even if, if, and I speak as a pastor, even if we find ourselves at times wishing he'd said more, <laughs> because it is at times difficult to discern exactly, um, you know, how do we think about these things? Their circumstances were challenging and confusing for the most mature Christians, and for the baby Corinthians, it was especially disorienting, which is why he writes what he writes. But the lingering question was, in chapter 7, and is still today, what do we do now that we're disciples of Jesus Christ? That was the issue. Should we get married? If we are married, how should we relate to our spouse? Should we ever get divorced? What if our spouse isn't a believer? What if, what if we are divorced, which, um, which in their day was very common, just as it's very common today? You know, can we be remarried? And if so, to whom? And under what circumstances? Right? All of those questions are swirling around this chapter. It's, it's almost as if, um, if you've ever seen sometimes, I don't know if it's like real or not, but like a signpost with like 23 different arrows, you know, and it says like, you know, Sydney, you know, 4,000 miles this way, and, you know, Hamburg, you know, whatever. It's just like pointing 8 million different directions. You come up to a sign like that, it's like, whoa, um, this isn't as helpful or clear. And that's what this chapter can feel like at times as you come to it. Um, But as we come to verses 1 to 7 this morning, which is what we're going to look at, Paul takes up first the issue of singleness and marriage. And so I just want to read uh, read the text and set it before us by way of introduction. Paul says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman... But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So in light of everything Paul has said thus far uh, in chapters 5 and 6 about the sinfulness of immorality and um, how they are to be pure and to walk in purity, it appears as you come to chapter 7 that a good number of the Corinthians were wondering whether sexual relations were allowed at all or had any place in the believer's life, even within the covenant of marriage. And that is what he's addressing. The last part of verse 1 is important. The translators, um, every translation is a, inter- makes interpretive decisions as it goes through, even the most literal ones. And, and what you see in verse 7 is not crystal clear. Just, is this something that Paul's saying, or is this something that they're saying? And Uh, In studying through that this week, I'm more convinced than I ever was before that what he's saying in verse 1 is not what Paul says, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's not his weighing in with his two cents on the issue, but that was what they were saying. In other words, it was another one of their sort of catch-all slogans that they were repeating back. They wrote to him, and what they wrote was, Hey, Paul, isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? And they included in that even husbands and wives in in a committed relationship. And uh, so that is the issue that he is correcting or instructing. Um, They had, again, this is more fallout from that false divide between the physical and the spiritual that we talked about in chapter 6. As we were introduced to... um, Chapter 6, we saw that there were one group of people, and we might call them the the libertines, who thought you can do whatever you want with your body, right? Because the body doesn't matter. Um, Paul addresses them and clearly corrects that thinking in chapter 6. But here we're introduced in chapter 7 to another group of people. We'll call them the, uh, the ascetics, who came to the exact opposite conclusion, but for basically the same underlying reason. And that is that the body doesn't matter. So, so these people that he's addressing in chapter 7, these ascetics were so spiritual, at least that's what, how they viewed themselves, that they thought that true Christian maturity demanded distancing yourself from and depriving yourself of everything um, related to the body whatsoever. Um, even to the degree of distancing yourself from and depriving yourself from your husband or wife in physical intimacy. Their thinking went like this. Jesus teaches in the Gospels that in the age to come, there's neither marrying nor given, we're neither married nor given in marriage. We've entered into that future age now by the Spirit, so, at least in a preliminary way, so the, th- so the conclusion is we should be like the angels now. 
right? The body, and the reasoning was that the body counts for nothing. It's, uh, they viewed it as, as sort of uh, lesser and, um, and really not as exalted as the immaterial person. So Paul has two groups of people. You've got libertines on one side that are doing whatever they want, and you have ascetics on the other side doing nothing and depriving themselves. And, um, and they're both fixated and coming to that conclusion on, the, on this false divide between their physical self and their immaterial self. One concludes you should indulge the flesh because it doesn't matter, and the other group concludes you should deprive your flesh because the physical is, doesn't matter. And, um, you know, as I read this, as, and as I read chapter, you know, studying through 5 and 6, and then you come to chapter 7, you can almost feel Paul take a deep breath here and kind of like take off his glasses, you know, and he's just like rubbing his eyes, and he's like, okay, <laughs> here's what you need to understand. Have a seat. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. Um, that's essentially what's going on here in chapter 7. That's what he's doing for us. These verses are meant to instruct us and to think rightly about uh, whatever situation we find ourselves in. <clears throat> in Ephesians 5, in verse 31, there's a quotation. And that quotation is actually uh, an Old Testament quotation from Genesis 2 and verse 24. And Paul says that when a husband and a wife leave their mother and father and weave their lives together to start a new family... The husband, that husband and wife become one flesh. They become one flesh. And that's, that one flesh relationship involves a spiritual coming together, a spiritual union, a, a social and relational union as a, as a, now, a new household, and an ongoing physical union. In fact, that physical dynamic is what is primary, primarily emphasized by this phrase, one flesh. Marriage we learn from the scriptures, is a sacred bond that is characterized by permanence. It is characterized by intimacy. It is characterized by a mutuality and an exclusiveness. And nowhere, nowhere is this more important to understand than in the realm of a husband and a wife's physical relationship. The Corinthians had missed the boat on this entirely. They completely misunderstood what Paul had taught. And the result was husbands and wives, or, or sometimes both, abstaining from all physical intimacy with their spouse, wrongly assuming that what Christian maturity necessitated was that. And Paul says that's not what God intends at all. In fact, he intends just the opposite for a married couple. The Corinthians needed to understand what the Word of God says about Physical intimacy, and so do we. When, and so what we want to do this morning is consider these opening verses from chapter 7 and see God's good design for oneness in marriage with our, with our bodies as husbands and wives. As believers, we need to be able to filter out what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is pure and what is, what is perverted. And the only way we can do that is to inform our hearts and minds with the scriptures about this important topic of intimacy within marriage. If we're going to ascend the exalted heights of oneness and intimacy in the physical realm with our spouse, God intend, that the way that God intends for husbands and wives, we need to be navigating with the trustworthy instrumentation of scripture and the spirit to guide us. We need to think biblically 
about sexual intimacy. And this is why we preach consecutively, because these are the kinds of texts that don't get a lot of attention. They don't naturally fall on the preacher's, I feel called to preach this to you list, right? We preach consecutively because we want to teach and preach all the whole counsel of God. And so we come to this text this morning because it's next in line, and that's why we're addressing this issue. And so we want to break the, the, the message down into three parts. Uh, the beginning here, we'll call this part one, we want to talk and understand the, who the author, uh, the, about, we want to speak about the author of sexual relationships. And, uh, and we begin with that um, in, in these verses. The first thing we understand is that sexual relations were authored by God as a part of the created order. And like everything else God created in the beginning, it was good. In other words, it is righteous, it is pure, and it is holy. If you turn with me back to Genesis 2 for just a minute, we're going to put our, our finger there for um, a moment. In Genesis chapter 2, we see um, the detailed account of creation of man before the fall. And in Genesis 2 and beginning in verse 22, it says, And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, Now this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see here is God created the woman from the man and created her to be his corresponding helper and companion. There was, uh, there was no other creature that, that fit that responsibility. And not only was the woman to be his companion and perfect helper, but she was to be his physical partner and perfect complement in every way in order to carry out the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Verse 25 says, in the beginning, they were both naked and not ashamed. See, before sin entered the created order, nakedness and physical desire were entirely innocent there was nothing polluted about them at all. These aspects of human beings' relationships had no shame associated with them because they were not distorted by sin. And they occupied the rightful place in Adam and Eve's heart. God created sexual intimacy to operate within the bonds of marriage, and that is evidenced by the first man and the first woman. And God declared it very good at the end uh, of chapter two, uh, end of chapter one, excuse me. But God not only declared it was good for Adam and Eve, his design is meant to be handed down from generation to generation. This, they, are the, they set the pattern for us and for all humanity that one man and one woman would come together in a lifelong covenant of marriage, uniting themselves together spiritually and physically in a one flesh relationship. For this reason, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that is, uh, that is before sin enters the world. But even after the fall, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm the blessing and holiness of sex within marriage. 
Proverbs 5, 15 and 19 speaks passionately about a husband rejoicing physically in the wife of his youth. Or in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9, Solomon tells us to enjoy the life with the woman or as a woman, the man that you have loved all the days of your fleeting life. The entire book of Song of Solomon is not an allegory about Christ and the church. It is a testimony to marital love and particularly emphasizes the satisfaction of intimacy between a husband and a wife. So over and again in the Old Testament, uh, the scriptures extol the goodness of everything that God has given us and created, including marital intimacy. But even in the New Testament, uh, the writer of Hebrews affirms this. He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed, which is, of course, a euphemism for physical intimacy, is to be undefiled, unpolluted by sin's immorality. So let me ask you this question. Do you think about sex within marriage as holy as praying or as holy as reading the Bible or as holy as preaching or as holy as ministering to fellow believers? Because when it is enjoyed within the unchangeable parameters of Scripture, it is just as sanctified as any one of those things. The Scripture teaches that sex is a part of our husband and a wife's calling to live life to the glory of God. It is rooted in the heart and creative purposes of God. And it, like everything else, it must be oriented toward him and serving him. So sex is God's gift to a husband and a wife, and it is to be enjoyed fully, and it is to be enjoyed frequently. That's why Paul says what he says in chapter 7, verse 3. He's in four, he says, a husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Each partner in marriage has the responsibility and the right and Paul has responsibilities and rights, I should say. And Paul calls on each to pay what is due, what is owed. Each owing, as we saw in Romans 13, a debt of love to our spouse. So it's significant. And I think it's significant here as you read verses 3 and 4 that Paul stresses the importance of giving rather than receiving. All of marriage is, all of marriage, every, every aspect of it is giving of oneself to your spouse. And that is especially important when it comes to physical intimacy. So God is the author of sexual relationships, and we need to understand that. But the second thing we want to look at this morning is the why. Why of sex. We have seen that the author is God. Now we need to understand the why, and so we can think biblically about it and glorify God in this dynamic in our lives. You can bring everything of the why, you can answer the why question in four parts under four headings. And uh, in, in true uh, homiletic style, they're alliterated. Uh, you guys that have been part of Iron Man know that that's, that's, uh, that's like uh, you hit your stride when everything's alliterated. And uh, so we're going to break it down to three or four parts and everything starts with the letter R. So what is the purpose of sexual relations within marriage? First, and the obvious one is reproduction, right? After God made the first man and the first woman, he said to them in Genesis 1, 
Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So reproduction becomes an essential part of the creation mandate for man and for the woman. Uh, children are the natural result of that sexual relationship between a husband and a wife unless hindered by uh, contraception or maybe uh, if infertility, which is always uh, a possibility. So reproduction, the gift of children, ensures the continuation of, hum- of the human race and is the fulfillment, is the means to the fulfillment of God's instruction to fill the earth and rule over it. It also ensures the New Testament mandate is fulfilled at making disciples because you can't redeem people that don't exist. So we have to have more people to make more disciples. So a healthy sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is indispensable to God's creative and redemptive plan. So on the most basic level, uh, a sexual relationship within marriage is for reproduction. Secondly, uh, the second purpose for sex in marriage is for relational intimacy. Relational intimacy. After God created Adam, you remember he said back in Genesis 2, verse 18, he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or uh, that matches up for him. And from there, then in verses 21 to 23 of Genesis um, 2, God created the woman from the man, which we read, and he brought her to him. And Adam was thrilled about that. He was excited about that. And why was he so overjoyed? Well, partly because he wouldn't have to go through life like Dr. Doolittle, just talking to the animals all the time. That he would have somebody that, that was his corresponding helper, someone that was, that was his equal, at least uh, on a, on a, um, on, on a having, bearing the image of God like, like he was. And he realized that this newly minted male-female relationship, which included a sexual component, would remove and alleviate his aloneness and provide companionship and relational intimacy for both of them as the two become one flesh. So God purposed that sexual relations within marriage would meet the husband and the wife's um, kind of hardwired need for emotional closeness and relational intimacy. Third, a third purpose for sex within marriage is recreation. Recreation. Physical intimacy when enjoyed within the confines of a faithful, loving, lifelong Marriage is meant to be pleasurable and it's meant to be enjoyable. Every aspect of physical intimacy from anticipation and desire to stimulation to fulfillment are all God's gracious gifts for humanity and are meant for a husband and a wife to enjoy without reservation and without guilt or fear. Within marriage, sex becomes the ultimate physical expression of deep, committed, and devoted love. It is meant to be satisfying. It is meant to be enjoyable. Fourth, a fourth important purpose for sexual relations within marriage is for the promotion of what uh, Christopher Ashe calls in his book the public good. The public good. God's restriction of intimacy to the context of a committed husband and wife alone provides order and regulation to sexual relationships in the society as a whole. He says, quote, undisciplined and disordered sexual behavior must be restrained because it carries with it such a high social and personal cost 
in terms of family breakdown, destructive jealousies, resentments, bitterness, and hurt. End quote. So there's a restraint component to God's design for sexual relations in marriage. Restraint is necessary because of sinful humanity's tendency to pursue sexual fulfillment in a disordered and destructive way as a whole. And that is what he is getting at in verse 2. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2, they wrote to him saying, isn't it good for a man not to touch a woman? And he says, now, because of the immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Um, you may not catch it in the English translation, but, but it's plural and it is specific. There's, a, there's, a, there's an article connected to that noun. It says, because of the immoralities, meaning probably the immoralities that were happening in their midst in chapter 5, where men in chapter 6 were, uh, were visiting prostitutes, it's possible that some husbands were being deprived of their sexual relationship with their spouse by their wife, and they were going to prostitutes instead, which is not an excuse for their sin, because that's wrong, and he points out that that's even destructive in the most serious way. So it's not excusing their sin or, or providing cover for their immorality, but the point is, it's just the reality of the situation that... And, and the point is that when, when sexual uh, behavior is not regulated within the context of marriage, it leads to impropriety, which uh, spills out into all kinds of consequences on a societal level and, um, and ultimately is the most destructive toward women and children. If you think about it, prostitution, pornography, homosexuality, pedophilia, all of those things... Are who are the most vulnerable in those situations? It's women. And with children, uh, they are abused. And that is because of a disordered sexual conduct by men particularly. So we need to be very careful to encourage God's design as a restraint on, on sexual immorality. In a monogamous marriage, Husbands and, husband and wife have the wonderful privilege of becoming one flesh, and they can be naked and not ashamed in a way that is ordered, that is constructive and edifying, and it is a privilege given by God, and that provides a restraint on immorality on a cultural level. So um, it's not a surprise that in the world we live in, where marriage has been basically destroyed on a cultural level, that what do we see like we talked about in Romans 1, you see the rise of immorality of all shapes and colors. And, um, and that's just a natural consequence of what happens. So God's given us intimacy in marriage for four reasons. Reproduction, relational intimacy, re recreation, and the restraint of our sinful desires. So very important. Physical intimacy is one of the most wonderful and blessed gifts to promote oneness in marriage and it is meant to be enjoyed in the context of Christian freedom and love. But, like anything good that God gives us, sin corrupts it. Sin destroys it. And that's what I want to end on. The third thing we want to look at this morning, we've seen the author of, of sexual relations, the why of sexual relations in marriage, and here we want to talk about the pitfalls of sexual relations in marriage.
Even if we embrace what the scripture says about physical oneness within marriage and we affirm its goodness and its holiness, our own selfishness and our own pride have a way of um, getting in the way. Uh, and uh, so in the few moments that we have left, I want to warn you or kind of turn you off of three pitfalls of sex within marriage that are commonplace and need to constantly be guarded against. These are sinful attitudes that can destroy oneness in a married couple's physical relationship. The first uh, is laziness. Laziness. Uh, Laziness is romance's assassin. And by laziness, I mean specifically laziness with regard to intimacy. Uh, Proverbs 26.14 talks about the sluggard. He says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. And the picture here is of a, it's a tragic picture. It's, it's an individual, a selfish person, who is habitually turning away from what they must do to do what is easy. And uh, this is one of the most common uh, issues when it comes to sexual intimacy in marriage. And it re- manifests itself, uh, practically speaking, in a passivity uh, and in unresponsiveness to, to our spouse. Um, we let our appearance go. We give no thought to how to invigorate and please our spouse. We grow complacent and content with a lack of sexual desire. We just kind of become indifferent to it. Rather than making time to, to pursue and to woo our spouse and initiate times of intimacy, we, we simply let a million other things crowd out that, whether that's work or kids or screen time or a million other things, we can find ways to be lazy. Men, if, you, if you've let this happen, it is your responsibility to set aside whatever is occupying your time and attention and pursue your wife. Women, lives. If your children or life's pressures or any of the other things that we've just mentioned have caused you to neglect your husband physically, you need to realign your priorities. This is a huge pitfall in many marriages. And Paul points it out in verse 5 because it opens the door for all manner of sexual temptation. You look at verse 5, he says to them, as he writes, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, laziness is a spiritual issue, and it's a spiritual issue that we must repent of and put on in its place diligence. That's the opposite of laziness is diligence. We need to be diligent in pursuing our spouse. Now, that said, Paul acknowledges that there may be seasons of time where you want to or need to devote yourself to the Lord in prayer and his word. Uh, where you need undistracted time with the Lord, undistracted focus on his truth. Um, and sometimes that happens circumstantially, as, uh, uh, whether that's physical illness or, or, or some other kind of uh, unexpected thing that was out of our control. But the reality is that there may be seasons of time like that, but those breaks, he says here in verse 5, are not meant to be open-ended, and they're not meant to be um, against the other person's will. He says, you're due to do this, come to this agreement uh, together. 
And it is for a time, a predetermined period of time, not, uh, not a very long period of time, most likely. And, and then when it's over, you come back together, lest you give Satan a toehold in, in our hearts. So that's why Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, I, but this I say by way of a concession, not of a command. In other words, you don't have to do this. But he recognizes that life happens and it may be necessary. And so um, we need to do it in a way that allows for the greatest opportunity for those things not to be neglected in the long term. He says, uh, so this is where I say that chapter 7, pick, uh, it takes up more of a pastoral tone. He understands that not everyone's circumstances are identical and, and there's not a black and white answer to certain things. It depends. It depends. What he's saying here and what he's affirming is that that is not the norm. Time away from your spouse physically is not the norm. Otherwise, if you do that, he says you open the door for temptation. So the first major pitfall is laziness. A second pitfall that can destroy oneness when it comes to intimacy in marriage is unbelief. Unbelief. When we let unbelief kind of wrap its tentacles around uh, our hearts, we can begin to believe its lies. Things, uh, lies like this, things will never change. Or the past will always bother me. Or I cannot meet this person's expectations. Or they don't understand me. Right? We approach intimacy believing these lies and that the issues we're wrestling with are beyond God's reach, that they are beyond God's grace, that God isn't powerful enough to change hearts and change our circumstances. But if there's anything we know from the scriptures is that there is nothing beyond God's reach and there's nothing beyond God's capacity. We serve an omnipotent God, a sovereign God, and he has ordained intimacy and built it into the fabric of marriage for a purpose. And it is meant to be life-giving and satisfying, and it's meant to be joyful. And we must take him at his word in that as Christians. So we need to be careful about laziness. We need to be on guard against unbelief. And the third way uh, that marriage, uh, intimacy in marriage can be um, zapped, one of the pitfalls we can fall into is bitterness. Bitterness. The difference between unbelief and bitterness is only one of degree. It's the only difference. Unbelief says I can't. Bitterness says I won't. Unbelief tells a spouse you, you can't change. Bitterness says you won't change. Unbelief leans away from God's promises. Bitterness slams the door on them. And shuts them out. So bitterness is one of the most common causes of a husband and wife neglecting their physical relationship. It rises, bitterness does, out of the ashes of smoldering anger and unresolved conflicts and chokes out intimacy within marriage. This is toxic and it requires nothing short of God's grace through the gospel, to bring about true forgiveness and reconciliation. So these are just a few of the pitfalls that can destroy oneness in a married couple's physical relationship. Laziness, uh, unbelief, 
not trusting that God, the things can change, and taking that to its logical end, which is bitterness, hopelessness. And I pray if, uh, in pointing those things out that you will be better equipped to break free from them. And there's lots of great resources available if you need help in those ways that we can direct you to and we can counsel from. So, so there is hope, and these things can be resolved, and, and our relationship with our spouse can grow. Now, with all this talk about marriage and the blessing and necessity of intimacy within marriage and fighting against immorality, the question that comes up is, does that mean everyone should be married? Is that, is that what Paul's getting toward? And, uh, and Paul answers that question definitively in verse 7. He says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, in meaning that he was... Uh, not married, at least at the time he wrote this, as a Pharisee, as a, as a kind of fastidious Jewish man before his conversion to Christ, it's almost, in, almost uh, it's not even really up for debate. Most likely Paul was married at some point in the past. We don't know the situation, but he's not married here. So most likely his spouse died, his wife died, or maybe she left him. I don't know. It, the scriptures don't tell us. Um, but uh, he says, to the, his answer to the question, should everyone be married, in verse 7 is, no, not necessarily. Not everyone is, is, not only, is not necessary for everyone to be married. There's nothing wrong with singleness if that's where God has placed you. In fact, he's going to get into it in these next verses, and then later on in chapter 7, he says being single has a lot of advantages, Spiritually and practically. So, um, so as we study through these um, verses, don't get uh, stuck in the trap of thinking, well, man, I, I should get married if you're single, or I have to be married in order to... No, that's not what Paul's saying. He says, he says each one has his own gift from God, one in this way and that one in another way, this or that. Um, and we'll even explain uh, why, what that is. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? We'll talk about that next week a little bit. Paul makes it clear for those who are gifted in that way, singleness is great. It's preferable. But the reality is that most of us don't have that gift. We don't. And that's okay. That's why I say there's pastoral wisdom being applied in these passages. Because not everyone fits into the same mold. So it requires wisdom and insight to navigate these issues. And so the fact that most of us don't have this gift of singleness means that most of us will be married at some point in our lives. And that that is good and right and holy. And if God has given you a spouse, you should give yourself wholeheartedly to them in every way. In every way. And so that's, that's what Paul has here in this section. There's just... There's just uh, so much uh, that he says here. And then, and then as we get into chapter, later on in chapter 7 here, we're going to see his instruction to those who are uh, unmarried and those who are widowed and those who are divorced and those who are in mixed marriages where their spouse is not a Christian. He has instruction for everybody in this section. So much helpful counsel here. And Paul measures out that counsel with grace and with understanding 
and with patience. And so we come to it with the same attitude, and that's how we're to approach these issues. These are important things. These are significant things, and uh, it's important that we understand God's will in them. And with that, we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again for your, uh, the gift and the blessing of marriage, and when it's rightly ordained and lived out, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel and your relationship to us as your church. We pray, Lord, that we would put forth every effort by your grace and through faith to, uh, to live these things out. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, there's in all the blessings and in the highs, highest of highs in marriage, there are also the lowest of lows and challenges that are significant. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in all of it. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you and obey you in these things. We pray, Lord, that you would build marriages within our church that would glorify Christ and that would uh, give testimony to your good news. Lord, to be with us now, we ask, as we sing our final hymn of praise in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.